This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hi. We will start in Israel, which is plagued by social unrest as the radical left sows chaos to protest activities of the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent. Yeah, this has, of course, been ongoing since the election of Netanyahu back into power. There are weekly protests outside our office uh, in the center of Jerusalem on this road that that kind of connects uh, where the prime minister lives and where the president lives. Uh, Every Saturday night, they come out, they beat their drums, they chant, and they want to bring down this government because they see it as a threat to democracy. Um, And this really did reach fever pitch this Monday. Uh, of course, the big the big uh, question going forward is how much change the Netanyahu government is going to be able to make to the judicial system that's basically run amok, um, making cases or deciding uh, upon uh, legislation, whether it's constitutional or not, based on its own definition of what is reasonable or not. And these, these uh, jurists are basically uh, elected by themselves so they're replaced by member <laughs> they vote to, to 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 see who can become part of the supreme court and so this was the number one factor getting netanyahu back was his promise to reform israel's broken judicial system and now they're doing it this monday was the uh, committee Basically, before a bill is brought to the Knesset, legislation has to go through a committee uh, that w- went through the committee and it was approved by the committee to, to come to a vote uh, on Monday. And so on Monday, there was a massive protest outside the Knesset. 60,000 Israelis showed up um, inside the Knesset. You had leftist lawmakers that were just mad, absolutely mad, jumping across tables, uh, you know, it was embarrassing. A bunch of looked like a bunch of uh, enraged children screaming at each other, um, and but it's it's ferocious. It's it's quite uh, all the the rhetoric, the talk is is getting more and more divisive. Even some words from uh, the the famous mayor of Tel Aviv, Ron Holdai, uh, he said this this week. He said, "Countries become dictatorships through the use of democratic tools. Countries do not become democratic again, except with bloodshed." Meaning that that's where we need to be. Ehud Olmert basically said the same thing. We can't finish this by talking. We need to take up arms. I mean, this is Israel. And apparently democracy is dead. And yet you look at all the favorable news coverage of the protesters. You know, mm. no one's stopping the protests from happening. They're, they're right. fully able to do that. Uh, so apparently democracy is still alive. Netanyahu hasn't clamped down on free speech at all. Um, however, I think, you know, Israel is just locked in right now to this battle um, over the reforms of the Supreme Court. But really, this is just this is just a uh, a manifestation of the anger of the fact that the left lost power mm-hmm. in the last election, 
and they do not know what to do and they will fight tooth and nail to get it back even calling netanyahu uh, a traitor is what they're calling him uh, right now well this this seems like a bit of a preview of what we can expect to happen in the united states when uh, when donald trump comes back to power uh, but for Israel to be tearing itself to pieces like this, this this kind of division really does make the nation vulnerable to to threats. And there was a um, a, a piece that was just talking about the uptick in uh, violence and terrorism within Israel that's taking place at the same time. That seems very much linked to the fact that Israel is so dis, uh, disunited. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, that's just another big point. Over the past uh, couple of weeks, there's been uh, five people, um, I'm sorry, 10 people that were killed in ter- terrorist attacks. There are another couple of terrorist attacks on Monday, the same day these protests were ta- going going on, uh, stabbing, car rammings, things like that. Six-year-old, eight-year-old boy died. Um, and so, yeah, this is going on at the same time. Netanyahu's trying to cope with just the political dysfunction um, but then he's got to try and clamp down on the, these terrorist attacks. There was a decision came through that they're going to, you know, reinforce 300 bus stops uh, in Jerusalem um, with, you know, ways to stop cars from being able to ram people that are just standing at the bus stops. So it is increasing. And, and I would say it's a, I don't know, it's, it, it, it over the past couple of months, it seems like there has been a greater enthusiasm among the Arab youth for violence mm. um and and even just it used to be 10 years ago when i was here you would hardly see arab youth in west jerusalem and if you did um they would be walking around doing their thing but not you know being proud yelling out being noisy now it's like they there's there's they are they understand that Israel is vulnerable right now. They're, they want an intifada. That's what a lot of the news reports are saying. Um, so there is a difference. There's a there's a very a lot of confidence, self confidence among the among the Arab youth right now. I think a lot of the other a lot of the elder Arabs in Jerusalem they don't want it, but it's ho- it's hard to hold back the Arab youth if they want something like this. So yeah, you've got this this feeling, and that's what a lot of people on the right are saying. A lot of the conservatives are saying, can we just tone it down a little bit? Can we stop tearing ourselves apart mm-hmm. while we are being teared apart by the enemy? Um, can we figure out that first? And so, you know, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And and I think what you see here is, you know, going back historically, the, the Jewish nation, um, whether it's the 70 AD destruction or, or even 586, it, you, you've got a lot of competing powers inside the nation that tears itself apart first and you know that's what we're seeing right now with these very divisive arguments one side calling the other side traitors um and calling on calling for taking up arms um which is just it seems so strange um however looking back at history we know those things actually did happen where do you see this going how does this fit in with the the picture of of bible prophecy and what we can expect to see within israel well, I think these judicial reforms will go through. This is why this government was elected into power. You've got a vocal minority mm-hmm. that are just mad. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not going away. I think that there will be, 
you know, law is on the side, I think, and, and common sense is on the side of Netanyahu. And even the president of Israel has said that, yeah, judicial reforms are needed. It's a bit crazy what our Supreme Court can do. Uh, and he's no friend of Netanyahu, mm-hmm. um, Herzog. Um, so I think that I think what we're just going to see is this bubbling, simmering tension that stays around in Israel from here on out, except the conservative government's going to have the power. And so perhaps that's a brief respite, um, but it's hard to see how this tension goes away. I mean, when mm-hmm. when it's not about an issue, but about a person, the personality in power, um, how does that go away until that personality is removed? And so, um, you know, biblical prophecy does indicate that this nation itself, like the other nations of Israel, will suffer from internal strife and violence. Um going forward, even though there might be a temporary respite here with Netanyahu in power, when Donald Trump comes back, that is not going to bring the peace internally in a country. It's going to make the the left, the radical left, stock raving mad. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're seeing. And as you said, this could be a precursor to what we could probably expect in the United States as well. Yeah, to to hear these people uh, baying about the loss of democracy is really, uh, that, that word has really lost its meaning when you're talking about a duly elected uh, official who is carrying out the mandate that the people put him in office for. Um, and it's exactly the same that's taking place in the United States. There's no sense to it. It really is this will worship that uh, Gerald Flurry talks quite a lot about where they, if they say it, it is truth. Um, where would you send people for more information about uh, what we can expect in, in the time ahead in Israel? Mihailo Zekic has a great article who I'm subbing in for today uh, <laughs> on thetrumpet.com. It's called Benjamin Netanyahu versus Israel Supreme Court. It goes into some of the prophecies uh, as well towards the end of that piece. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Nachtigall. More evidence emerged this week of Russia's determination to prevent NATO from expanding. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, the leader of Moldova, President Maya Sandu, said during a press conference on Monday that Russia had orchestrated an elaborate plot to overthrow Moldova's government. The uh, government there is pro-European right now, so the plan was to get rid of them and install a pro-Russian kind of a puppet regime instead. So this was a major announcement, and it came just about a week after the Ukrainian government said that their intelligence service had intercepted this evidence of of this uh, Russian plan to topple Moldova. So basically, Moldova was just confirming that earlier report, and they revealed also some of the specifics of the plot. And the specifics are quite elaborate, but really nothing unexpected. It called for, you know, saboteurs dressed like civilians to attack certain government buildings and then to take hostages, while other saboteurs were fomenting violence out in the streets. So this is uh, similar to what we saw with Russia's takeover of Crimea about nine years ago. And there have been kind of variations on the same set of tactics in other places as well. And uh, this time the target was Moldova. And, you know, I think it's also notable that just a couple of days before this announcement from the Moldovan president, the prime minister of the country actually resigned. Inflation there has been just soaring in recent months, even reaching up to 30%. There's also been power cuts happening all the time. Both of those were caused by Russia's decision to throttle 
the uh, gas supplies that it sends to Moldova, but it resulted in just all kinds of pressure on the prime minister. And then there's also been more and more fear among Moldovans over Russian missiles that have been violating their airspace, flying through it while they're en route to Ukraine. So the prime minister stood down as a result of all that. And uh, it, it shows that even though this coup plot was discovered before it could be carried out, there continues to be just considerable uh, political disorder and many unknowns in Moldova right now. Why is Moldova important to Russia? Yeah, Moldova is, you know, it's just this little sliver of a nation about the size of Maryland, population less than 4 million, but its location makes it tremendously important to Russia. Moldova lies just in between the Carpathian Mountains and the Black Sea, and so that means that whoever controls it can really help determine the direction that armies can move through the region in. Um, We've spoken on some recent episodes of Trumpet Hour about the different corridors through which Russia has historically been vulnerable to invasion. Uh, and Moldova, specifically the Bessarabian Gap in Moldova, is high on the list of those corridors. So Russia has tried to control it for centuries. You know, Imperial Russia did establish control over this for uh, throughout most of the 1800s. And then the Soviet Union absorbed Moldova in the 1940s and kept it for another half a century there. And then even after the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia kind of let all the other nations go. But because of Moldova's geographic location, the Russians set to work immediately trying to reassert control over it. And they were able to break off the eastern edge of the nation, a little territory called Transnistria, which has kind of been a de facto Russian state ever since. And Vladimir Putin keeps uh, a large military garrison there just to ensure that Russia can maintain its control over, over Moldova. Then in addition to the occupation of Transnistria, the Russians have also kind of maneuvered behind the scenes for decades just to destabilize the overall government of Moldova and just keep it as non-functional as possible. Uh, Russia wants it to be fractured and poor and broken so that it can be controlled. And Moldova is Europe's poorest country, and that's all by Russian design. But despite Russia's best efforts, Moldova's people and government have increasingly unified behind kind of a pro-Western vision. And that has really intensified since last February when, you know, they watched their neighbor be invaded by the Russians. And, you know, Moldova just got candidate status with the EU a few months back. Last month, they said there are serious discussions now underway about them joining NATO as well. So all of that is just anathema to the Russians, largely because of geography, because of that vulnerability. And, and I think all of that is a big part of what made Russia plan this coup. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, you, you think Russia has its hands full with what's going on in Ukraine. The fact that they would be plotting something like this in a neighboring country really does demonstrate just how determined they are to uh, prevent this kind of expansion by the West. Yeah, that's true. Even though this plot failed, the very fact that Russia planned it shows that the Kremlin, I think, is just more determined than ever to, you know, as you said, prevent NATO expansion and to undermine the West and to reassert control over the countries and its periphery, even if it has to use violence to do that. And these realities, I think, are very significant in the context of what Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in 2008. At that time, Russia had just invaded the former Soviet nation of Georgia. And he said that Russian invasion signaled, quote, 
a dangerous new era. You know, that, that might have sounded a little bit alarmist at the time. Who cares about Lilliputian Georgia? Um, but the events that have happened since then have really shown that that statement was accurate. You know, in, in the years since, we've seen Russia assert control to varying degrees over Syria, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and of course, Ukraine with this full-scale war, and others too. And now Moldova is moving higher up on that list. So this, this uh, plot, it's really only the latest act of aggression by Russia, and it provides more evidence showing that, just as Mr. Fleury said, the world is in a dangerous new era. Well, Mr. Jacques has a, uh, a short article about uh, what has happened here. The title of that article, Moldova, Russia's Next Conquest. That should be up on the trumpet.com very soon. You can check that out, as well as that uh, article by Gerald Flory about the dangerous new era. Uh, we thank you for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. To Germany now, where politics seem to continue growing more divisive as evidenced by the rerun of the Berlin election recently. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, the Berlin election story is probably something that's pretty similar uh, or pretty familiar to many in the United States. There were lots of allegations of um, problems at the votes. There were uh, cities that were, or place, polling stations that ran out of ballot papers, workers that... Uh, weren't showing up, complains that people's votes weren't counted and, and polling stations temporarily closed. And so the German high court stepped in and basically said, you've got to do the whole thing again and do it properly this time. You know, America, that's how other countries handle it when this kind of thing <laughs> comes up. Uh, so yeah, they that's exactly what they did. They hired an extra 4,000 polling workers. They uh, made sure everything went properly. And so you had the rerun of that election this weekend, the one that was uh, you know initially held... I think it was all the way back in 20, 2021. Yes, it was the 2021 election uh, held in 2023. The court case took a, took a long time. So that was that's one part of this story that I think is interesting. But also then you got, uh, it's kind of a fascinating result to unpick. So the right-wing Christian Democrats won by a landslide, but will almost certainly play no role in the government. Uh, it's just this... And other continuing story of the fracturing of German politics. So this has been a stronghold for the left for a long, long time. But the Christian Democratic Union had 28% of the vote. It was 10% more than the main left-wing party, the Social Democrats, about 10% more than the Greens as well. So uh, they have that, but they have no coalition partner. Uh, so... You know, their future is in doubt and the path to just not just in Berlin, but around the country, because these Berlin results were not at all unusual compared to what results would be in other places. Uh, where's there a path to power for them? Mm. Then at the same time, you've got this coalition government. So we've got this traffic light coalition where you've got the social Democrats that are the left wing party. They're kind of Germany's equivalent of the Democrats. You've got the Greens that are generally even further left. And then you've got the the free Democrats that are kind of right wing, kind of like the Libertarian Party, something like that, that are with them as well. The free Democrats got wiped out. Uh, they didn't manage to cross the minimum threshold for having any seats in Parliament, so or in the in the state Parliament. The, that's going to introduce a fair bit of uncertainty at the uh, at the national level. They're sitting in. They know that they're part of this government, and they know that they're hemorrhaging support. 
because they're part of this government. They're a right-wing party that's propping up two pretty left-wing governments. They don't have our parties in government. They don't have much to show for it. The longer they stay in coalition, the uh, the worse their polling results are going to be. And so they've got a pretty strong incentive to quit and get out of there. I don't think it's necessarily something that's on the table for tomorrow. But as each bump in the road comes up for this coalition government, they know they've got a strong incentive to cut and run uh, and to probably do that sooner rather than later as they're hemorrhaging support. So you see the situation where there's potential instability for the German coalition, but there's not really any clear path for uh, a rival to emerge either. This uh, seems to be kind of a microcosm of exactly what is happening federally within Germany, where the status quo that has governed German politics for decades is turning into a, a really ugly picture of, of division. It is. And I think it's, it looks, this is another story from this week where it looks like it could be about to get even uglier, where... There's this growing trend in support now in Germany against sending weapons to Ukraine. So initially, as the war began, there was kind of an overwhelming support for Germany to become more muscular, to rearm militarily. And then this kind of carried over into support for Germany sending weapons to Ukraine as more of a secondary matter. But there's a, an increasing strength showing that there's a lot of people opposing arms deliveries to Ukraine, a majority within East Germany are opposing arms for Ukraine. And this is looks like this could be uh, foreshadowing another split and the emergence of a new political party. You've got uh, Sarah Wagnecht. She's a co-leader of the left-wing party. She held a protest this week alongside a prominent uh, feminist, Alice, Alice Schwarzer, and they had a mass demonstration against weapons deliveries. Uh, this is something that you're having... There was a well-regarded German philosopher that was coming out against. There's a growing movement against weapons deliveries, and it's specifically more of an anti-NATO movement than a pacifist mm. movement mm. that wants Germany to move away from the United States against NATO. You know, we were talking about these kind of trends on Wednesday's show and in my uh, trumpet brief this week. But uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, Wagenknecht forming her own political party, breaking away from the left party that, that does seem like it is kind of dying. It is the remnants of the, the, the East German Communist Party, and its support is getting eroded by even people like the Alternative for Deutschland on the far right and some of these other groups. So there's talk that she could come along. And a lot of people think that if you have an anti-NATO party uh, within Germany, that there is an opening for that. Because Everybody else, all the mainstream part, you know, the Christian Democratic Union, the Greens, the Social Union, uh, or the Social Democrats, they may be differ, differ on left or right, but they're all uh, overtly pro-NATO. Mm. So you've got the potential now for another fracture, another crack within uh, German politics. And Eurointelligence wrote this week, the bottom line is that German politics is about to get more divisive. Uh, they said that we may well soon come to this situation where the only viable centrist option is a coalition. You, know, you kind of could get to the point where there's only one possible government, and that's this beige, you know, brownish coalition that's a mixture of all kinds of different different uh, parties. So we've we've tracked this trend for a long time in Germany, that Germany is becoming harder and harder to govern as its as its uh, politics fracture. 
we haven't talked about it as much over the last year. It's kind of been overshadowed by what's going on in Ukraine. Initially sure. after the war, I think you have kind of a rally around the flag and a bit of unity. Uh, what we're seeing, I think especially this week, is that this trend of fracturing is back and the picture is going to continue to get worse. So just to talk briefly about why this is so prophetically significant. So the Bible has some specific prophecies. You know, we watch for a strong man in Germany. Herbert W. Armstrong watched for a strong man in Germany. He had articles going all the way back to the 1930s. This is a key event in Bible prophecy that you're going to have this strong man that is going to help lead and forge a European superpower. He's talked about in the book of Revelation. He's talked about in the book of Daniel. He's a very important figure. And the Bible talks about how he's going to come into power. He's going to come into power by flatteries, it says in the book of Daniel. He comes into power in this, and you look at the Hebrew, this is a way that's outside of normal coalition politics. He's not voted into office. And where you have this political system fracturing, that provides an opening for someone coming in uh, by flatteries. And then you look back to history, you look back to the 1930s, this is exactly the kind of way Adolf Hitler got into power. This is where you had mainstream politics just stop working just seize up all kinds of governments that couldn't get together you had election after election without any clear results and people kind of gravitated towards the extremes as they voted center right and then they just did some kind of agreement with the center left so there's a warning from history from this same dynamics and there's a even stronger and more specific warning from bible prophecy all right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer. We do have a booklet by Gerald Fleury, A Strong German Leader is Imminent. We will link to that in the show notes if you want more information about the prophecy informing that analysis. America's debt continues to grow into a greater liability and a national security threat. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is something we've been uh, we've been talking about for several years now that America's finally just about approaching a, a tipping point in its financial sovereignty. And specifically that t- tipping point is when the cost of servicing its debt actually exceeds its defense budget. Uh, there's actually still a chance that could happen this year, but it'll almost certainly happen next year. And I'll, <laughs> I'll try to make this as exciting as I can. I know going through financial statistics is not everyone's uh, cup of tea, but this is really one of these stories that um, is probably not going to get a lot of news coverage, uh, even though it's one of the most important things happening in America right now. And uh, starting at the beginning, inflation is still a problem in America. Uh, Biden's going around bragging about how uh, inflation's fallen every month for six months and has actually come down. The f- official statistics have come down from 9.1% to 6.4% over six months. That's mostly due to falling used car prices. Food's still more expensive. Gasoline's still high. Housing's still getting more expensive. So any American not in the used car market is probably still <laughs> going to feel like inflation's as bad as it's always been, mm-hmm. uh, which means that the, the Federal Reserve has committed itself to fighting inflation by raising interest rates. And so they're, uh, the interest rates, they're already at about 4.75%, uh, and they're, the Federal Reserve's eyeing two more interest rate hikes in the coming months. So it'll, it'll go up above 5% soon. Um, 
which makes it more expensive to borrow money. If you want a mortgage, it's gonna be more expensive. If you want an auto loan, it's gonna be more expensive. Uh, if you want really any type of borrowing, it's gonna be more expensive. And that's bad news for America's biggest debtor, the federal government. Uh, we've got 31, the federal government has $31 trillion in debt. Uh, they budgeted to spend about $400 billion uh, this year on the interest on that debt. $400 billion. That's uh, insane. Well, yeah, and it gets more insane than that because that's what they budgeted for. But that uh, that projection was based back when they thought that interest rates weren't going to get above 2.6% this year. And now they're going to be double that. So you spend uh, elementary school mathematics, you, your interest rate doubles. <laughs> the amount you spend in interest doubles. Mm. And we've already seen that we've actually, in the first four months of this fiscal year, the first third of this fiscal year, um, America spent $261 billion. And so that's more than half of what we budgeted for in four months. Mm -hmm. And so you work it out, as like I said, if you, even if the interest rate didn't go up, let's say the Fed didn't raise the rates, you take 261 and multiply it by three, uh, you're up to about 775, uh, give or take 1,000. Uh, so that's... 775 that's almost 800,000 that's double that's double what you budgeted for and it actually would have been uh more that's actually more that 775 more than we budgeted for our military so if we uh if we kept to our military budget uh this this tipping point where the amount of interest is more than we spend on defense uh would have happened this year the only reason it's not happening this year is that Biden just approved a big military spending hike so instead of spending 750 billion dollars on our military we're going to be spending something like 850 billion uh which was going to be which will probably be more than we spend on interest uh but next year almost assuredly uh if the interest rate's still going up the interest rates will actually be even bigger than our defense budget and it's not a magic equation where it's like as soon as the interest gets above the defense budget, like right. everything falls apart. It's kind of a rule of thumb that like if you're uh, if your debt's so big that the amount of money you're spending on your interest is roughly the same as you're defending your borders, you're very soon going to be getting to a point where you can't defend your borders anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, a pretty a former Trump administration defense official actually said this week that America needs to slash its military budget uh, in half. <laughs> and he's probably right. Yeah. Uh, in the fact that, like, looking at all the different threats around the world, I don't think even most Democrats wouldn't want to slash our military budget in half. But when you do the math... <laughs> You're like, you have to balance the budget. I saw one Forbes analysis that had basically crunched the numbers and said that, like, if America wants to run a balanced budget and start paying off its debt, it can keep Social Security, it can keep the military, it can keep the National Park Service, because everyone likes national parks. But, uh, <laughs> but everything else has to go. Which and they were making an extreme point. I think it's like we need highways and we do need to spend some other things and everything else. But basically saying the point that like if you want anything above the military, social security and the park service, and you probably will need some of that, you're either going to have to talk about drastic tax hikes or 
put the two things that no politician wants to talk about. And like I said, we need to look for ways to start scaling back Social Security and for ways to start scaling back military spending. Because if we keep spending like we're spending now, you're going to get to that point where the interest on the national debt is so big that you, you literally can't buy anything else. Yeah, the uh, this the fact that this is a national security threat comes down to the fact that even that increase in spending that Biden is making militarily, uh, we can't afford that. And uh, there's a point where you just can no longer afford to defend yourself. You can no longer afford to protect yourself against outside threats. Uh, and uh, so the the country is very vulnerable to uh, to outside uh, threats. Right. And uh, yeah, and private <laughs> with private citizens, they call that bankruptcy when you get to the point where you literally don't have enough income to make the payments anymore. Mm. Uh, and America nations can get to that point, too. And that's that was now Ferguson's main point is like I said, even before the bankruptcy point, you get to a point where you have to take the money you've allotted to your military <laughs> and start using it on interest payments on the debt uh, because you're just not financially solvent anymore. Um, one of the articles we can put in the show notes that isn't about this specifically, <laughs> but uh, it's an article that's uh, almost 14 years old now that our uh, trumpet contributor Robert Morley wrote, why Joseph should be in charge of the economy, um, makes a point that both nations and individuals can live by uh, from Genesis 41 about uh, when Joseph told Pharaoh he knew that there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So he said, so like save 20% of everything you have during the years of plenty and then use that 20% to live on during the seven years of famine. America actually had a pretty golden opportunity, especially being descended from um, Joseph's eldest son, Manasseh, uh, to do the, use that wisdom after World War II uh, because all you got, like the 50, you had this, it was, economists still refer to it as an economic miracle. I mean, standard of living, uh, standards of living, you know, like basically doubled <laughs> uh, over like World War II. But instead of actually like using this huge increase in standards of, of living to save 20% <laughs> that you could use in crisis situations now, uh, they spent all of it and still went into debt. Mm. And so now you've got some pretty hard choices here where you're pretty much no matter what you do, you're like, you can't cut Social Security because we promised retirees that we'd take care of them if we garnish 6% of their paycheck. We can't cut the military because China's going to take over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you can't cut the highway service because we want to go places. It's like there's there are things you can They've got like LGBT funding programs that no one needs, <laughs> but but that's not a huge. As ridiculous as those are, they're not a huge percentage of the budget. Mm. Um, <laughs> you could, you could trim a little fat here or there with stuff that no one needs, but it's like when you actually talk about balancing a budget, you're going to have to cut stuff that people think is essential. Yeah. Um, that's where the United States is today. Uh, Mr. Miller has written an article about this. Federal interest payments to exceed America's defense budget 
that should be on the trumpet.com very soon. We'll also link to why Joseph should be in charge of the economy if you'd like to read that. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Republican lawmakers warning that Iraq is a client state of Iran. The Philippines protesting China's aggressive activities in the South China Sea. Policemen in Germany fired for Nazi remarks and the horrific chemical spill in Ohio. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Iraq is a client state of Iran. Now, this is something the Trumpet has been warning about and saying for decades now. Well, this week, some Republican lawmakers made the same point. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, an amazing uh, piece over at the, at the Free Beacon uh, commenting on um, a letter that. Republican lawmakers sent to the Biden administration, calling on the Biden administration to acknowledge reality. And that is that Iraq is a client state, a vassal of the Iranians. And so why in the world, if Iran is sponsoring terrorism, if Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism, if Iran's hell-bent on getting a nuclear weapon, why are we propping up the Iraqi government still? And America is doing this to an amazing degree. Hmm. $500 million of taxpayer, U.S. taxpayer money per year goes up to propping up the Iraqi security apparatus, who most of those figures are allies of the Iranians. And so you've got that. That's what one of the things that the the the. uh, Republicans bring to att- their attention. This is Republican Michael Waltz, uh, Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, and Joe Wilson. They're the three that wrote the article. Um, I'll just quote the article. It says now, and and any holistic U.S. policy toward Iran must also simultaneously address Iraq as it is now, as a client state of Iran, rather than continuing to pretend it's a healthy democracy. And that is just... I mean, this is the Republicans in the House. Uh, They are now acknowledging that Iraq has definitely uh, fallen to Iran, something that Mr. Gerald Flurry prophesied as early as 1996 Mm. and then confirmed in 2002 and three after the United States invaded Iraq, even with 100,000 U.S. You know, soldiers there. Mr. Flurry said, no, this is going to lead to Iraq falling to Iran. And now you have finally have the U.S. House of Representatives that are acknowledging that fact. What were uh, some of the rationale that they gave for uh, for for this view? Well, you can see that the government in Baghdad right now is I mean, most of them, the only the only counter to the Shiite um the Shiites that were supported or that were in bed with Iran inside that government walked out. They said that we can't be a party of this government because the Iraqis themselves recognize that this is a, a government that's going to do Iran's um, business. And so, you know, you don't have that many anti-Iranian players inside the Iraqi government. Um, and, you know, you, you can also tell 
and they bring attention to this, but this is something we spoke about two or three years ago, that you might have President Trump renewing the sanctions or re coming back with the nuclear deal and putting up the sanctions on the Iranians. That's good and well. But what about if you give waivers to certain countries to buy Iranian goods? And what, what country buys Iran gets those waivers? More than any other country in the whole world, it's Iraq, their neighbor. Because, of course, you know, they do have a symbiotic relationship. They do need each other to a certain extent. And so this was played off by the whole deep state mechanism and told Trump, you know, we, they have to have the waivers. They have to have the waivers because Iraq needs it. And if Iraq's not going to be an Iranian ally but an American ally, we need to keep Iraq going strong. So they need to still be able to buy Iranian stuff. Well, it turns out that you know, the government in power in Iraq loves Iran. So they get buying all Iranians, Iran stuff. So Iran gets money. And then the Iraqis are on selling that stuff to the world. And who who's getting paid? Iraqis. What type of Iraqis? The Iraqis in all these huge ministries, the oil ministry, the health ministry, and those leaders inside those ministries, they're Iranian stooges as well. So Iran is getting paid twice because they've got the Iraqis now doing their bidding, basically being the portal for Iranian goods to get to the open market through Iraq. So the, these US, uh, US Republicans are basically saying, hey, we need to treat it like Iraq is just like Iran. Mm. No more sanction waivers for the Iraqis. And let's quit giving them almost, you know, if, you, if you've got the military aid plus other aid that Iraq gets, it's almost a billion dollars a year of taxpayer money. So this is US taxpayers money that's going to fund the Iranians. Mm -hmm. Let's put it how it, how it really mm -hmm. is. The Iranian alliance, the king of the south, as what we talk about in biblical prophecy is this Iranian alliance that's going to include Iraq that Mr. Flurry said was the case going back 30 years ago now. And now they're being funded by US taxpayers mm. through Iraq. It's 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 stunning. It's extraordinary. Yeah, these U.S. small lawmakers are waking up for it, waking up to it. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important for our uh, our listeners to to realize uh, just the the picture that you just painted in light of what Gerald Flurry was saying decades ago. We've just finished a revision to our uh, King of the South booklet and updating. This booklet that he wrote back in 1994, I believe the first uh, the first edition of that booklet was, uh, with the latest facts. And he was talking about, uh, you know, if, if you remember at the time during the 1980s, Iraq and Iran are at each other's throats. Uh, Saddam Hussein is the is this uh, very strongly anti-Iranian leader over Iraq. The United States and and Mr. Flurry is talking about some way or other because of the prophecies of the Bible. We we can see that these two are actually going to be allied with one another, and uh, the United States goes in there, removes Saddam Hussein personally, uh, and then is building this this nation up. Since then, this is two thousand three that that takes place. So twenty years have gone by where the United States has been pouring resources into this nation, and it has unfolded precisely the way that biblical prophecy said that it would, that you have a, it's something very close to practically a single entity between these these two nations. I'm really excited we should be able to publish the, uh, the King of the South booklet online. We've sent it to the printer. We should put it online here uh, quite quickly, but to for, for people to be able to see that and get that history uh, and to see what it was that Gerald Flurry saw in prophecy that led him to that conclusion some 30 years ago. 
uh, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. Well, we'll link to that King of the South. I, I'm not sure if the, the new version of that is up online quite yet, but it should be within a very short amount of time. Uh, we thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Noctegal. An incident in the South China Sea yet again has the Philippines concerned about China's aggression in these waters. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the president of the Philippines, summoned China's ambassador on Tuesday to discuss his, quote, serious concern over China's actions in the South China Sea. And the uh, the specific reason for this concern is that the crew of a Chinese Coast Guard ship used a military-grade laser a few days earlier to temporarily blind the crew of a Philippine Coast Guard vessel that was near the Spratly Islands. So this uh, Philippine vessel was delivering food and supplies to Philippine Navy vessels that are stationed at the Second Thomas Shoal there in the South China Sea. That's a, it's a submerged reef in the Spratly Islands. China claims ownership of it, just like China claims pretty much the entire South China Sea as its own. But this shoal lies well within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, as defined by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So, you know, China's claim is unlawful and it's ridiculous, but Beijing stands by it. And because of that, they felt justified in, you know, blasting this military-grade laser at the Philippine crew and actually blinding the crew. So the blinding was only temporary, but who knows what kind of technology this laser uses and what kind of long-term effects that would have. But in any case, it just shows that China is belligerent and violent and absolutely determined to take territory from the nations around the South China Sea. And the the Philippines is a nation that China has been courting and trying to uh, to bring more into its orbit. And uh, there's just no doubt when incidents like this, and this is not the only one, uh, who is in the power position in that relationship. And there is a certain amount of coercion uh, on China's part. Maybe you could just talk about uh, its activities with respect to the Philippines and the South China Sea in general, why this is such a strategic uh, uh, mile, mile marker for China. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're right. It's, it's been kind of an oscillation from China between a charm offensive where they reach out to the Philippines and other nations, and then they'll turn around the next day and, you know, undertake some kind of active aggression like this. It, it doesn't seem like a wise strategy, but that's what we've seen there for really more than a decade. But, uh, but the South China Sea is among the most valuable and important ocean areas on the globe. It's uh, just immensely wealthy in resources. Some 11 billion barrels of oil are there, 190 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, also about 10% of total global fisheries. And then even more importantly is that the South China Sea is just a major nexus of shipping. Something like uh, $5.3 trillion worth of trade flow through the South China Sea. That's about 30% of total global shipping trade. So it's just an exceptionally important maritime region. And China wants to be able to lock it down and control it and to make sure that no one can block China's ability to import and export as well. So uh, this is why China is just so antagonistic to other nations like the Philippines who have control over parts of it. And Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said that China's drive to control the South China Sea should really be sounding alarm bells all around because it means, quote, China is steering the world toward war. In the uh, July 2016 issue of the Trumpet, he wrote an article by that title, China is steering the world toward war. And one part of that article says, 
China is intimidating the nations of Southeast Asia into submission to its will. It is forcing these countries to do it at once. Everything is headed in the direction of war. And then his article goes on from there to explain that all of this really provocative Chinese activity is contributing to the fulfillment of a Bible prophecy about modern-day America and Britain actually losing control over the oceanic gates and, and vital shipping routes, that control that they long had. That prophecy is in Deuteronomy 28:52, And Mr. Flurry says that China's takeover of the South China Sea and, and its you know ongoing push against nations like the Philippines is one of many areas where we can, quote, already see this prophecy moving toward its fulfillment. We have a couple of articles that uh, we'll link to in the show notes, including one about this specific incident and Mr. Fleury's article, China is Steering the World Toward War. Thank you very much, Mr. Jacques. Nazism and Nazi sympathies continue to surface within official German circles, this time within the police force of a German state. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, there were 18 police officers in the state of Saxony-Anhalt that were fired after they participated in a chat with Nazi, anti-Semitic, uh, racist or violent incidents. This came during their time as police students from September 2017 until December 2021. Uh, they, you know, police, there was a complaint. The police went through 5,000 different individual messages. Uh, at least 50 were flagged. Somebody was showing a picture of you know, sharing a picture of Hitler in 2017 with an anti-Jewish inscription. Uh, February 2020, a photo with what looked like a dismembered female corpse. I think if this were a one-off, uh, it wouldn't be all that surprising. You know, there's always going to be a small handful of unpleasant people. I think in any who apply to join or in the training program of any kind of police force, uh, but. When it comes to Germany, this isn't just a one-off. It's the latest in a, a whole series of different events and uh, like this, where you kind of have one after another, uh, some much, much more serious, where you had people kind of actually planning attacks. You had groups kind of collecting, stealing weapons from state forces and collecting them. This kind of a, this kind of a thing. So it's a, it's a, another worrying report of this. Uh, simmering far right in some of Germany's top institutions. The presence of uh, Nazi sympathies within those institutions, this is something that we have talked about and warned about for decades at the Trumpet. Can you explain why? Yes, it's something that we have focused very much on because the, uh, the Bible, well, the Bible tells us to. Uh, Revelation chapter 17 talks about this beast power that repeatedly rises in Europe, this empire that rises and dominates. And uh, at the moment, it talks about it being, or, or until recently, it talks about it being underground. It says that it, you know, it is and it was and it is not. It kind of disappears from the scene and then it comes back again. You know, what this is telling us is you have the same spirit that keeps reviving in Europe, the same Holy Roman Empire that keeps reviving in Europe. And uh, the, the the sixth revival of that was uh, in the form of you know, Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and, and conquering Europe, and Hitler was the, the top leader there. And the Bible talks about it going underground. And you saw, after Hitler left, a whole bunch of these people that were senior figures under the Nazis, you know, the, the, the most visible ones got arrested, but the next level below that generally stayed in place. They managed to convince the Allied authorities they had nothing to do with Hitler. Subsequently, all kinds of evidence has come out to say show the opposite. 
they went underground. They disappeared exactly the same way, the, exactly the way that the Bible said. And then in so many of these same institutions that you can track them going underground in the army, in the judiciary, in the police forces, we're seeing these incidents that show that there's something there's something deeply concerning there and you've got people as even as as mainstream as say the new york times looking and saying well there's something very concerning bubbling under the surface within germany and you're seeing this this rising beast come back up exactly the way revelation 17 said they would it's something i wrote about in uh, the october 2020 trumpet print magazine in an article why does germany have so many neo-nazi conspiracies all right. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. We'll link to that in the show notes. A train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio, released an enormous amount of dangerous chemicals into the community, yet the government is treating it dismissively. For this, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this could end up being the greatest environmental disaster in United States history. Uh, it's actually a couple weeks back now on February 3rd. A uh, 150-car train carrying toxic chemicals was traveling from Illinois uh, to Pennsylvania. And uh, along the way, they had 50 cars derail. And so that's uh, 50 cars full of chemicals. There's a, a lot of chemicals spilled into East Palestine, uh, Ohio. Uh, they obviously they caught fire, and so if you've seen any of the pictures of this, this the dark plumes, it looks like a, I don't know, one of these plumes you see like from a war in Syria or someplace like that, where like this massive bomb's been dropped, and then the chemicals uh, got into the river, and so uh, they've got cows, chicken, foxes, and other animals up to a hundred miles away. Uh, dropping dead. I've seen some of the video footage from some of like the local uh, rivers where you can see, <laughs> you can see the glimmer in the water. Whereas like mm. that's not water. That's some oil based. <laughs> that's some oil based chemical. Uh, and then just with like the the frogs floating uh, floating belly up and the the fish <laughs> with their eyes glazed over. So it's a huge environmental disaster. But like you said, it's really. Uh, Interesting, just how uninterested the government seems uh, about talking about this or even dealing with this. You don't see a ton of coverage on mainstream news media. All the videos I've footage I've seen has been on like Twitter from like privately recorded stuff. The uh, governor of Ohio, he's actually requested the Federal Emergency Management Agency or FEMA for disaster relief and they got back with him that he wasn't eligible for disaster relief so apparently the greatest environmental disaster in u.s history is not above the threshold <laughs> for disaster relief because of if if that's not eligible for disaster relief then i guess nothing is uh, and even the environmental protection agency the the epa has come out and said that everything's fine um and there's there's nothing to be too concerned about, which uh, any small business owner in America who's dealt with the EPA knows that they can be uh, they have a pretty good reputation for being a pain uh, with like you can't build this building on a swamp because there might be a frog that lives in there. Or, uh, some, <laughs> <laughs> some some pretty some pretty micromanaging uh uh, regulations for the average everyday American, but for the for, for the greatest environmental disaster in uh, in U.S. history, they don't have a uh, 
they don't have much to say and I, I don't i don't know if there's some sort of bigger conspiracy the government's trying to cover up here or if this is just the case of a um, run-of-the-mill hypocrisy wherein it's a, a local dairy farmer who's got too much cow feces in the river shut him down uh but if uh <laughs> 150 or, or 50 train cars spill toxic chemicals uh, into the environment in a way that makes the government look bad. Just move on. There's nothing to see here. Uh, but that is one of the prophecies. It does seem like we keep uh, uh, keeps coming back with more and more frequency in Isaiah 10 and verse 5 about God being against a hypocritical nation. Uh, And you definitely see a lot of hypocrisy in how FEMA and the EPA and the Biden administration has treated this uh, greatest environmental disaster in American history versus how they treat (laughs) a myriad of much, much, much lesser environmental disasters perpetrated by people that the, the government doesn't care about as much. Well, we do have uh, an article by Rufaro Maniepa up on thetrumpet.com. What is going on in Ohio? We'll link to in the show notes. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Brent Noctegall, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Alexander Pope. Some people will never learn anything because they understand everything too soon. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.